This is TDPS. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at facebook.com slash the dinner party show. No, I meant in the car. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. And we are back with another installment of True Crime TV Club. And I'm just getting right to it to Yeehaw. short circuit whatever banter Yeehaw, Eric had yeah, planned. You know, from the I'm beginning. always ready to talk about stuff. <laughs> ready to Talking do. about stuff. Just going off on your own tangents and your own bantery, bantery directions, as they call it. In the podcasting biz, I, don't, I think I made that term up just now on the spot. But. Just talking about whatever the fuck I want to. I yeah. think that's kind of how podcasts work, isn't it? Well, you know, I actually got a book, How to Start a Podcast. <laughs> really? Which was a little late because like- How did I miss starting writing that book? How like, to Start are... a Podcast. Well, it was interesting because the woman who wrote Lean it- Lean into microphone, begin speaking. No, it was actually about the creative side because not everybody can just turn on microphones like us and go blah, 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 blah. Well, um, <laughs> I, I would say almost everything. I think you could get a six-month-old baby to do that. I would love that. <laughs> a baby, baby podcast. podcast. Yes. yes. Okay, so no, none of that. What she was talking about was- um, create the creative conception of a podcast, right? What ideas worked and what ideas didn't. And she talked about her bad podcast, and this was the idea. She would take a movie, and then she would interview somebody who uh -huh. had been through what was depicted in the movie, the type of event, not the actual historical event. So I think she did, or filming the movie, but like she did a horror movie about someone who got about three people who get stuck on a ski lift. <laughs> Which was maybe her first mistake. So she brought in people who'd been stuck on <laughs> yes. the ski lift? <laughs> and she thought it would be this great podcast. And she was like, the people that I was interviewing didn't really want to talk about it. It was just this thing that they had been well, through. Well, and they weren't necessarily good at talking about stuff. Exactly. And so she said that was a bad idea for a podcast. I can't remember the name of this woman, but she had worked at one of these big media companies. <laughs> and she had been in charge of making bad podcasts, apparently. And this was a bad one. Um, but... I, you know, it's, it's, um, it's like, uh, I'm not going to tell that story, but there were times on the dinner party show when we would open with. Doesn't everybody want to know what that was going to be about? Well, we talked about a news story that we thought was going to be funny. Oh, yeah. And it wasn't funny. It was not. It was about something bad happening at a Waffle House. Right. And we thought the Waffle House it made it funny. And thing. it's like, it's a bad thing. Waffle House doesn't make it funny because yeah, the no. word has two Fs in it. Just because Waffle had waffles involved, it was still a terrible story. And so, yeah, I remember that. And it was like, well, that's not funny at all. This is a terrible story that we're going to talk about. And this is a setup. Also, not very funny. And not at all remotely funny. Uh, this is a setup where we've done this once before, where we do a true true crime TV club that sets up a true crime movie time in our subsequent episode. Right. It's a crime pairing. A crime pairing, unlike a wine pairing. Right. It's like because we do plenty of whining, but we don't need a crime to bring that on. We do do a ton of whining. So, uh, the episode that we are going to talk about, we have never done this show before. This series, I should say. It's called The Crimes That Changed Us. The episode title is Atlantic Olympic Bombing. And this will position us. The crime that completes me. The crime <laughs> completes me. Some of the shit sometimes. The tone is like <laughs> the crime that defines who I am. Um, this is, uh, is going to set us up to talk about Clint Eastwood's film, Richard Jewell, in our next episode. That's the movie time. We right, feel that's like, the movie version yeah. of the story that we're talking tonight. So... Heads up. Yeah. That's the crime pairing. We're doing those two things. Um, we have never done a special quite like this because not a single person is interviewed on camera. I've never seen this. We hear their voices. We see archival images of the people they're right. interviewing. And the rest of it is entirely um, news footage from the period, which normally I love. But It's I very documentary. It's very documentary. But it's very it's like all voiceover 
for the footage. So, okay. And it worked for me stylistically, but I had some trouble keeping track of who was who uh, in terms of who was talking to us. And I wouldn't say, not to get too far ahead, because we don't want to talk about the movie yet, I didn't walk away from this documentary with an intimate sense of who the people were who were portrayed in the movie, like the the people other than the central player we're going to talk about, uh-huh. because I didn't see them on camera. I didn't see how they. I didn't see their mannerisms and all that sort of stuff. So I don't know if that impacted your enjoyment in the long run either. But well, it was very. Um, it was it was very factual, and it was like I said, it had a documentary kind of quality to it. So it felt informative, yeah. without being uh, particularly uh, personal. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so let's get right into it. Um, July 19th, 1996, the Olympics kick off in Atlanta. Were you, you were living out here in California when the, by this time, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was in New Orleans and I remember yeah, I this. I moved here very, in 91. 91. 91. Okay. I remember this whole time very vividly and I remember Atlanta has always felt like New Orleans' classier, bigger, more successful big sister. Um, so when they got the Atlant with the Olympics, it was like, oh, Atlanta again. Atlanta's shining on. Yeah, also plainer. <laughs> <laughs> plainer sister. She works more successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So but, um, attractive, but yeah, definitely the plainer of the two. Uh, we hear the voice of a gentleman named Calvin Thorburn the third, and he is describing for us what the mood in the city of Atlanta was like as the Olympics were kicking off. He says tickets were hard to come by for the actual events, so most people were planning to go to Centennial Park. That was a large public area with music stages. I wonder where that was located. I don't think I've ever been really. I've been there. Clear on where it was. What part of town was Centennial Park even in? Do you know where the aquarium is? Don't. Okay. Well, then you're fucked. I'm sorry. <laughs> you don't have any <laughs> Then it means of, I can't explain you're it. You're not going to be any help. <laughs> I remember the aquarium being nearby. Okay. I just, yeah. I just, I'm, it's one of those things. One of the great things, I've always said I wish that cities, more cities, I wish LA would take Atlanta lessons because they don't tear everything down. No, they don't. It's the, the most one of the beautiful parts of that city is that it's all still there. Yeah. You know, I mean, obviously there was the the burning incident which I think mm-hmm. sort of re re-racked the focus yes. on what does it but since then I think that maybe that is bec- the reason why they have such respect for their own history but I so if you added something like Centennial Park, I'm not sure where you'd put it. That was what I was trying to imagine in my in my head. I don't know where they even played the Olympics when they were in Atlanta. Well, they other bu- than at universities, and there. they built new facilities for it, which always happens. You get all this money, and you can build these places. I think Centennial Park was placed in an existing park that is very close to downtown Atlanta because I remember walking to it from my hotel downtown years after all this happened because uh-huh. the parkland remained parkland for some time sure and i think the aquarium that was there several years ago is located on the park but is that the one you went to with my sister that's the one i went to i have a giant a picture of the two of you standing in the the in these jaws these giant story tall megalodon star uh, uh, jaws i like sharks dentures dentures anyway megalodentures megalodentures uh, we so we are clearly not the podcast to find out where Centennial Park. We is. have no idea where that is. In some place, it's in Atlanta, and that's as much as we've got for you. Okay, so then we hear the voice of Bobby Jewell, and she is talking to us about her son Richard Jewell, who was working security at Centennial Park during the Olympics. And she tells us that Richard always wanted to be a policeman, and he took every course that he could take. He worked with several smaller security forces. And he asked his mother if he if she thought he could get on at the Olympics, is how she phrases it. And so he began to work security at the park, and his post was the AT&T, I guess you would call it a communications tower, opposite the main stage where the musical acts were going to play. So it yeah. Was, yeah, it was also an aspect of um, Olympics that I have not, like, I don't know that I have deep familiarity with the way the Olympics are, but this seemed a lot more... Um, festival mm-hmm. than I usually see at Olympics. The fact that there was a stage with ongoing musical acts and this big tower and stuff, 
I don't really remember that as being parts of other Olympics I have seen I don't seen think it's else. normally covered. And I have to say, from my memory of this event, nobody was covering it until what ha- is about to happen happened. It, it, it even seemed from the... From looking at it, that it was very separate itself. The yes. Centennial Park was very separate from the games themselves. They were somewhere else. And the games, like I think, are all over whatever town. Sure, in. you have because to you have to of, have the yeah. facilities that you have to have. It's but... why when they come here in a few years, we're leaving. We're going to leave L.A. for the time that we're they're gonna here. Say, we're going to yeah. last one out. Turn off the lights and lock the door. Yeah, we'll absolutely. be. We're leaving now. Bye. Totally. Um, yeah, we're going to go to the desert and hide under your mother's bed. But so I guess what I'm trying to say is I think a Centennial Park is part of an, every Olympics, but we don't see it on television because what's the point? You know, it's it's more sort of for local people to gather who are either not attending the events. That's or, what it seemed like to yeah. me. It looked like sort of free ongoing concerts. It reminded me of the Pride. Yeah, absolutely. That sort of atmosphere. And Roger Kinnison, who was a spectator that night, tells us there was no bag check. So that's some foreshadowing. We then hear but this the, is pre 9 11, so it was a very different kind of world. It was, we were living, this was so nostalgic for me because 96, I was on my way to college. I had just graduated high school. This, um, this happened. I don't want to get too far ahead, but this was, you're right, this was like a more innocent time. We re- the 90s felt like everything was fixed. I mean, we still had major problems, but it was like the Cold War was kind of over. The economy we was had coming won. back from the crazy trickle-down economics idiots. Yeah. Right. And so, and it was like there wasn't a massive looming international threat that we could see at the time. Yeah. The idea, there was international terrorism didn't seem like something that was going to happen. Either. And honestly, I think prior to this, the, the World Trade Center had already been bombed. Unsuccessfully, I might add, it from the eyes of the terrorists who tried to make it collapse, the bomb was a, went off in the basement. It, it was a terrible event, and people were hurt, and I think a few people were killed. Yeah. But it was nothing on the order of the cataclysm they had been attempting. Yeah. Um, it, it, the Oklahoma so it was beginning, but we weren't really aware of it. But the Oklahoma City bombing had happened. And that was we were aware of. Wow, that was terrible. And I believe... Either right around this time, either just before or right after this, TWA Flight 800 blew up over Long Island, which a lot of people, I believe mistakenly, thought was an act of terrorism for a very long time. So there was the sense that, like, there were maybe threats at home, right? Like, why are you looking at me like that? This is my hand gestures? Christopher is um, has <laughs> draped himself in a, a, a fur throw and is now... <laughs> It's over his shoulders and over his arms, and he's gesturing to me, and it's sort of like the Beatitudes are getting ready to to, to start. Blessed are those. Blessed are those who, who go to Centennial Park, where they shall hear Kenny Rogers. <laughs> Blessed are those who were young in the '90s because everything seemed fixed. Little did we know. It really did seem like a, a what was sort coming. of halcyon times. The I believe I was born in a place called Hope. Yes. Um, David Tubbs, the FBI special agent in charge from 95 to 98. He must have been in charge of some. Was he in charge of Atlanta or I don't know. I think we meet the Atlanta agent later. He said they took security seriously, but they didn't think anyone would disrupt the park. They just didn't think it was a risk. It just wasn't a thing that people thought of at that time. Like the... Seeing the setup, it's just it's almost inconceivable now. Like yeah. things just don't look like that anymore. Right. It was just a big park and you could just walk up and be in the park and then walk back out and yeah. there was that was it. There was no fencing. There was none of those cement they look like girders that they lie down on the side to block entrances and right. exits and none of that was around because it just hadn't happened yet. Um the uh twelve fifty eight AM. T-bars, I think they call them. What do they call them? Those like concrete barriers? Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. 12.58 a.m., someone calls in a bomb threat for the park and gives a warning time of 30 minutes. Now. And they just call 911 kind of randomly. And the content of the, I think they play the message. And the content of the message is something like, you have defied the militia. You have, there's a bomb in Centennial Park. You have 30 minutes. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Uh, the band that is playing on stage at the time is Jack Mack and the Heart Attack. Um, Which, you know, really has probably been a big boost for their career. Yeah. And this is like, this special moves really quickly. Okay? Because, 
Suddenly, the bomb has gone off in Centennial Park. Yeah. <laughs> and we're hearing Richard Jewell's mother, Bobby, say he called me to say there was a bomb and he was okay. And he tells his mom, I found the bag and I started pe- pushing people out of the way. And witnesses say that after the bomb went off, it went from a loud, festive environment to complete silence. But unfortunately, the bomb is filled with shrapnel, so there are many injuries and even deaths. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. <laughs> We hear from a CNN producer, a former CNN producer named Henry Schuster, who says that he was awakened by a phone call saying that something has happened in Centennial Park. They've confirmed it's a bombing and not a gas explosion. And they hear Richard Jewell's name right away from the people that are being interviewed on scene. And so Schuster becomes determined to get an interview. I was the Schusters of the Simon and Schuster. Like, I, Carly uh, Simon is the Simons. Is this the Schuster that... I always forget that about Carly Simon. She, oh, Simon and Schuster is... Okay. Yeah, it was her. She was, she's the Simon of Simon. Well, not her personally, but her father was yeah. certainly there. And I think the family... Anyway, so then we're introduced to the voice, I should say, and photographs of Watson Bryant, who is identified as being Richard's attorney. And he says that Richard called him and told him, I found the bomb. They met years before when Watson was a lawyer for the Small Business Administration and Richard was working there. It was an unlikely friendship, uh, but they had stayed in touch apparently over time. And Richard, Richard felt comfortable enough calling him in this moment. He congratulated Richard, he said. And then Richard said he agreed to be interviewed by CNN. So Richard gives an interview on CNN, which is sort of a moment in history that a lot of us remember. Uh, They show it. He was soft-spoken. He was uh, not ragingly articulate, but he was pretty accurately described, apparently, what had happened. Um, We then hear from Ron Martz, and he was a reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, which is their big local paper. Remember that name, Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And Mr. Martz. He says there were rumors the games would start uh, getting shut down. The the first confirmed death was reported. It was a 44-year-old woman from Albany, Georgia, named Alice Hawthorne. Uh, She had apparently, I believe, was fatally injured by the shrapnel that came out of the bomb. A photographer from Turkish State TV suffered a fatal heart attack as he ran to cover the scene. I thought the implication there was that it was like residual shock from the blast. Maybe, you know? but, you know, in, in any case, in the moment, that those were the two fatalities. There were a lot of other people injured, and their sense was that part of the reason that more people weren't injured was that there were people standing in the way to absorb mm. the... Um, the shrapnel and oh, to God. the people who were injured actually protected oh. a lot of the people who were not. God, yeah, it was hideous. hideous. It was hideous. The bomb was loaded with nails and mm-hmm. what have you. It was just, <clears throat> and that was really what did uh, the most of the damage. So Richard Jewell becomes an overnight media sensation. Uh, meanwhile, the FBI is receiving no evidence of international terrorism, and they are looking to the rise of white nationalism and the radical right-wing backlash to Bill Clinton's election as president, which happened in 92. And there had also been Ruby Ridge and the the, the, the horrible Oklahoma City bombing, the Timothy McVeigh bombing. Which and, uh, we covered, and... we covered um, both of those events in episode 67 of this podcast when we talked about an episode of American Experience called Oklahoma City, if right. you want to check that out in our podcast library. But yeah, there is a sense that America is being attacked from within. Uh, and there's also no claim of responsibility. Nobody other, if you, if, unless you're counting the 911 call that came in from yeah, someone. Yeah, but that wasn't really, yeah. they didn't say much other than the thing about defying the militia, but that was a little vague. So based on that call, 
and these assumptions, if you will, about the state of domestic terrorism, they decide they're looking for a white male American with a light southern accent. They find the location where the call was placed. It's a pay phone. No fingerprints are discovered on the phone. And it's 1990. Boy, this made me feel old when they said this. It's 1996, and so there aren't cameras everywhere, which is true. But it feels and there like, are pay phones. Yeah. Neither of them thinks they're still true. Right. And folks from Quantico, from the FBI, fly in to make a profile. They have nothing. Uh, profiles. Uh, that's my soapbox. Like profiles. Okay, anyway, we'll get Just to that later. Just not sure about profiles. Yeah. But yeah. An incident out of the past that comes to everybody's mind is the L.A. Olympics. I believe it was in 1984. A security guard at LAX, our local airport, if you've never heard of it, um, found Flax, as Eric calls it, found a ticking time bomb under a bus that was carrying checked baggage. And it turns out he planted the bomb himself and claimed to have discovered it so that he could be a hero. His name was Officer Jimmy Pearson. Okay. Not the most clever way to go down in fame. Also, interesting fact the X in LAX stands for nothing. Really? They just needed a third letter? They needed letter. a third letter, so they did X. All airports have the three-letter names, and they didn't. since L.A. is just L.A., they added the X so they would have three letters. So it stands for nothing. Because if it was B, it would be lab, and everyone would get confused and think of dogs. Yeah, Stick around for the jokes. I worked it. on that one all week. <clears throat> okay. So simultaneous to somebody with the FBI remembering Officer Jimmy Pearson— a previous employer of Richard Jules calls the FBI oh. and says, Richard got in a lot of trouble while he was working security for my college, which is Piedmont College. He was making traffic stops off campus where we had no jurisdiction. And he wasn't really authorized to make traffic stops on campus either. It was not really part of his jurisdiction. He was... Yeah. About security and, you know, keeping order and that sort of thing, but not about proactive, let's say, law enforcement. But exactly. he was very interested in being a police officer, so he kind of got a little overzealous about it, apparently. Mm -hmm. This is now the moment of this special that you're going to want to keep in mind if you're going to follow us all the way into our next episode where we talk about the movie Richard Jewell. Because this special that we're talking about now does not address by name one of the most significant players in this story, as Absolutely. we come to discover. Instead, Ron Martz tells us in voiceover that his reporting partner, unnamed, came in one morning and said, I know who they think did the bombing. It was that security guard. And I think they ran with the headline. Like that day, they yeah. ran with the headline: Pretty "Richard much. Jewell under suspicion" or "Hero Security Guard." It was it was big. And as... the Olympics were still happening. Yeah, and so the world press was there, Absolutely. and it was a big deal. And since the Atlanta Journal Constitution is the paper um, mm -hmm. in Atlanta, it certainly was then. I don't know how newspapers are doing in Atlanta these days, but I hope well. Um, but it really it got picked up by all of the national media because they were all right there and exploded. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, they're all outside of Richard's house, his apartment, where he lives with his mother. Uh, they, the FBI tells Richard they just want him to sort of come in and talk. I can't remember. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but I think the version in this special was that they weren't exactly clear with him about why they wanted to talk to him. just wanted to clear some things up. Right, and, and they said they were going to film him because that was part of procedure right. there. And there were apparently also a number of interviews with him. That was one of the things this special yeah. uh, pointed out. They interviewed him several times, but he was very cooperative because he felt like he was part of investigating the crime. and they Right, and they say the video is for training purposes, and they say as part of training purposes, we want the people who watch this video to see that normally we have to read people their rights, so instead we're just, just sign this form, like, you know, so for the camera, and, you know, they hand it to him, and he realizes as he reads the form that signing the form is tantamount to having his rights read to him. It is a form outlining his Miranda rights. Right. It's saying he's understood his rights and they've been read to him. And he is, you know, he is 
somewhat acquainted with law enforcement, apparently, mm-hmm. and that just didn't sit with him. And so he asked to call his attorney, and that is effectively the end of that conversation that the FBI wanted yes. to have with him at their head, local headquarters. So he goes home. More reporters are waiting for him. It is a scrum. I think a lot of us have well, seen that footage. He gets the lawyer on the phone, and the lawyer says, don't sign anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And don't say anything else to anyone. Mm-hmm. And so he goes home. So he leaves. The apartment, the reporters are on him, uh, did, shouting insane questions at him. Did you do it? Are you a terrorist? Why did you do it? You know, all the sort of stuff that they usually do to get a rise out of you on camera. And as one person who is uh, interviewed in this special says, the hero becomes the zero. Um, yeah. And I believe he went out to address the media outside of his apartment. Don't they show Richard actually going outside to talk to them? I don't remember that I don't specifically. Remember that. Maybe my notes are bullshit, but um, no, I, you do a pretty good job with it. I just don't particularly remember that moment. I there was a he was never reticent, like he wasn't chatty, but he wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, like the an obelisk about it, or he wasn't like the Sphinx. He would say, "Excuse me," or "Hi," or "No, I'm not in part of the investigation," or those kinds of things. Very sort of minimal mm-hmm. kinds of addresses, but he was never like brusque or just didn't say anything. He didn't no act like a criminal. The next day, the FBI gets a search warrant, and because the media is already camped out outside of his house already, when the FBI uh, comes to do what they claim is just a routine search, it becomes an absolute spectacle. Bobby Jewell tells us in voiceover that they tore the apartment apart. She felt humiliated before the world. Um, The FBI agent Stubbs stands outside the apartment saying the search is part of a process and does not indicate that Jewell has been charged with anything, and he tells the media they are being cooperative. They discover in the course of the search that Jewell had a sheriff's badge from a county where he wasn't a certified officer, just a jailer. Was there any more details about that, or did they just know? It was just a continuing, just a little piece of evidence in this Mm -hmm. pretending to be a police officer thing that was part of their lone wolf hero complex profile thing. Mm -hmm. His lawyer, Watson, uh, he gets the FBI's former lie detector guy, and they give Richard a test. And uh, he passes. He passes well. Yeah, yeah, flying colors. He says he absolutely passed it. The, um, there was no, uh, it wasn't even sort of close. Ron March from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution says, now one of his reporters, unnamed, has decided to walk from the payphone where the call was made to the bombing site to see if Richard could have made the walk in enough time to warn people before the bomb went off. And so now... After putting Richard's name in the headline, accusing him of doing this, they say it was physically impossible for him to have done it. And that was, of course, the headline around the world. Uh That was what everybody wanted to talk about, that it was physically impossible for Richard to have done the thing that they themselves accused him of doing and began this entire spectacle. Bobby Jewell gives a press conference calling on the president of the United States to end this nightmare for them. She becomes incredibly emotional. This was seen around the world. Cries, sobs, puts her face in her hands at the podium. Um, And uh, in October, right? So we've now gone from July to October. Middle of the summer until the in the fall. Watson, their lawyer, calls Bobby to say the whole thing's over. Richard uh, Richard has been cleared. Uh, he speaks to reporters about his having been formally cleared, but, like, that was it. I don't think the FBI ever oh, gave no. a press conference. Never. There was yeah. never any public admission yeah. that they had gotten it wrong or that he was cleared or that he wasn't guilty. Nothing. January 16th, 1997. This is almost a year later. In Sandy Springs, which is 15 miles north of Atlanta, two bombs go off. The stronger is set to go off after the federal agents arrive. The special is really sparing about their mention of this, but this was an abortion clinic that was targeted. I don't know why they didn't say that up front, but they sort of have one of the voiceover people mention it almost in passing. I actually remember that bombing Mm -hmm. better and more distinctly than the one at... uh, 
in Atlanta. I I always had the impression until I saw this that the one in Atlanta had been sort of like an explosion in a trash can that hadn't yeah. really affected anybody, but it was like, oh my God, there was yeah. something blew up. I didn't realize it was nearly as bad as it was. I didn't know anybody had even died. I know. I didn't know that there was a death as a result of that. This is when I learned that, too. Okay, February 21st, 1997. This is almost a month, a little more than a month after the bombing at the abortion clinic in northeast Atlanta. Gay bar, the other side, is bombed. Two devices are planted. One goes off. The one outside does not, thank God, which probably... Uh, there were no fatalities at this one, if I got that correctly. Um, but the link between it and Sandy Springs are clear. The bombs were made in basically the same way. In right. fact, the sheet metal matches. The bombs were made from the same sheet uh, sheet of sheet like metal. A, yeah, like a single piece was cut into parts and made all of these bombs from. And so was the bomb in Centennial Park. <laughs> I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. So they have proof now that it's a serial bomber who also bombed Centennial Park, Mm -hmm. and none of it had anything to do with with Richard Richard Jewell. Jewell. Birmingham, Alabama, almost a year later, January 29th, 1998, 7.33 a.m., a bomb goes off outside an abortion clinic. It kills a security guard, and it maims a nurse. A college student in the area at the time hears an explosion and then sees one individual walking in the opposite direction very calmly. Which is, he saw, was very suspicious. That's a smart college student. He should get the job of being chief of police in Vallejo. Absolutely. <laughs> if you don't know what we're talking about, listen to our previous episode, yeah. because yeah. Oh my God. Um, he sees a car and a license plate, and that is how they identify a gentleman named Eric Rudolph, originally of Murphy, North Carolina. We now hear the voice of Chris Swecker, who was the FBI special agent in charge for North Carolina between 1990 and 2004. Um, The FBI reaches Eric Rudolph's home, and they find that he has just left. There is still food on the stove. His friends reveal he's anti-gay, anti-abortion, anti-government. He is named a top 10 fugitive. He flees into the mountains, and he is charged in the bombing at Centennial Park. Santanical. I was about to call it Santanical Park. Um, a major fugitive hunt begins for him in western northern Carolina, and it goes nowhere. Do you remember anything about this? The I don't. search for Eric Rudolph? I remember the bombing of the gay bar. That's what I remember because it was so disturbing right. going out to gay bars at the time. Um, not in Atlanta. May 31st, 2003, seven years now after the bombing at Centennial Park. Or Santanical. Santanical. Santanical Park. A gentleman named Jeff Postal in Murphy, North Carolina. He's a police officer. He is patrolling a grocery store parking lot, and he sees somebody hanging around the dumpster. He stops the guy and takes him into custody. Not really clear why he took him into custody. Not sorry, given what followed, but if he was, like, stealing something or there was a vagrancy law of some sort. You certainly can't do that here in California right now. Was suspicious of him for his behavior. Found his behavior suspicious and came up with a reason to take him in. I yeah. don't know that he had arrested him, but they did take him in. To talk to him. To have a conversation. Right, which I think that as the police are sort of allowed to do. I don't know. I'm not in charge of that. But Well, he identifies him as Rudolph. And Rudolph is booked and he soon confesses. That he set the bombs, and he says that he wanted to bomb Olympic Park specifically to embarrass the government for its supposed sanctioning of abortion. So that's that's the those are the actual facts. That's of the, the actual case. crime. Uh, we then hear again from and Sh- how long? How many? Seven years. Seven years. 
Schuster, the CNN guy from the beginning who worked hard to get Jewel on television, says what condemned Jewel was an FBI screw-up amplified by the media. And he says today, and this was particularly chilling and I thought pretty fucking accurate, with social media, you don't need to have either of those players in play for someone to be condemned in the public square. I don't think that's the exact quote. It's one of the things that, didn't his mom say that, the two most powerful forces in the world? Or maybe it was his lawyer who said the two most powerful forces in the world, the U.S. government and the media. And the media. And they both lined up against Richard Jewell. Right, and just decided. But the thing that seems the most tragic to me is that what they weren't doing was running down who actually did it. So there was this other series of bombings that killed other people and injured other people that might have been prevented if they had actually followed actual evidence as opposed to some story that they made up that they were trying to find somebody to cast in. I, I agree. And and Martz, we hear from Ron Martz, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution reporter, and he says he doesn't regret their article on Richard, but he says he wishes they could have made clear that all of the sources came from law enforcement. Because that makes it okay. Yeah. On August 29th, 2007, Richard Jewell dies at the age of 44. Uh, his mother said the stress of those years played a major role. Okay, that, wrap, that wraps up all the facts. But yeah, I, profiles. Like, we have to, t- like, profiles are exciting in a Hollywood movie because the character walks in, and but profiles are, like, based in conjecture. They often don't draw from an extensive pool of examples. Well, like, there was one. One security guard in LAX in 1984 pulling this crap is not enough evidence to convict Richard Jewell. Well, it isn't any evidence. Yeah. Like it's, I mean, it's conjecture and it's an interesting place to look as a possible thing. But it's like, I don't see it as any more trustworthy or less trustworthy than bringing in psychics. It's Mm -hmm. all just an, an intuitive guess that you're making based on you know, certain facts and information that you might be finding, but none of it is based on actual evidence. It's We, we did this with the, the, the Taken episode last time mm-hmm. um, where you need actual evidence of something having happened. It's not just a matter of you're, I like you for this or you're good for this or you could have done it. It's like, well, that's interesting, but do you have any actual proof that I did do it? I just... I don't understand how that can be a thing. I don't know how prevalent this is. I mean, we may be seeing exceptions. Mm-hmm. Right. We talk about that all the because time. Because yeah. that makes for a better story and a better whatever. But I, if it, even exceptions, like this should be anathema to law enforcement. And law enforcement should really go out of their way to denounce this. Like every FBI officer who participated in this with Richard Jewell, should have been, you know, I don't know what the FBI equivalent of walking a beat is, but, you know, pushing desk. paper, pushing yeah, paper at a, a desk, desk somewhere yeah. because they aren't qualified to be field investigators, that they would allow something to turn into this kind of media riot. It's just, it's part of your responsibility. And uh, Right, and here's the thing. Richard Jewell was going to be investigated. Sure. As par for the and he course. he should have been. Right. Even he said he should have been investigated and cleared and moved on. But they never found anything yeah. to implicate him. And you don't leak to the media that you're doing this kind of preliminary investigation because it's all they're going to talk about. And, it will just, and then suddenly the investigation is reacting to the media firestorm that one of its own leaks ignited. And those two forces are working together at the expense of the actual evidence. That's a whole other story, but yes. I mean, and it's... um, And this poor man, in the meantime, his family, his life was completely devastated. Because you can't... This thing happens where it's like you crack open somebody's life and somebody's history. They stand accused without evidence in the moment, of something truly horrific, and you're suddenly looking at whether or not they ever cheated on their spouse or whether Scott Peterson downloaded porn or ordered pay-per-view porn. Like, those things may damn somebody in your personal view, like, and they may but violate your moral code, but, but there's a long walk between there and murder. And there's plenty of people downloading porn on the yeah. Internet, and that's not murder. I, I think, and then when you throw in, as we do now... The explosion through social media of convicting people. We've right. we've just lost all sight of due process. Mm-hmm. Like I don't think people ought to be. I think people ought to be held to account. And I think 
I think Richard Jewell should have been investigated, but I don't think he should have been convicted in public, the court of public opinion, sentenced and punished. Mm-hmm. You know, I there have even been cases of late where people find out that somebody was convicted of something and served their time for it, and it gets brought up again on social media because whoever it is who wants to bring it up believes that they are entitled to punish the person right. again mm-hmm. that who has already served their time or done whatever. Also not okay. Yeah. Like, not your place. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it isn't... You don't get to decide about people based on what you think of them. There is right. an actual process, and that's how it works, and it's how it should work. Like, it should be... I, it's just terrifying to me. I used to make people who were friends of mine promise me that they would break me out of an insane asylum if I ever got committed mm. because I don't think it's really much of, as much of a thing anymore because nobody wants to pay to actually care for people who have mental illness anymore. We just turn them loose on the street and let them sleep in the park mm-hmm. because, you know, it saves money and they don't vote anyway. Mm-hmm. Um Think that was let's the be Reagan's. clear that you're being facetious. Yes, 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 being, yes. Right. that was the Reagan solution. <laughs> right, to, totally. Uh, compassionate care for the mentally ill, which mm-hmm. is never recovered uh, to this day from the Reagan era. That right. horrible monster. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, you can't get out of a mental institution until they say you can get out. It is entirely subjective, mm-hmm. and nothing terrified me more than the idea that somebody else gets to say whether or not I'm sane enough mm-hmm. in air quotes to be released from this prison mm-hmm. that you have put me into. Like when I was a kid, being gay could land you in an insane asylum forever. And unless you're willing to renounce being gay, you could be spend the rest of your life locked up. Right. And so it, Gave me pause. And so I would ask people, I like I say, I don't think it happens anymore because I don't even think we actually institutionalize people who should be and should be cared for compassionately um, in our selfish tax cutting world. Mm-hmm. Except we never cut anybody's we never cut spending. Mm-hmm. We just got taxes. Right. Um, we just have, don't pay for it. We're mm-hmm. still spending it. Um, but we don't spend it on people who can't defend themselves like people with mental illness. And and I think that um, it's very much the same kind of thing. It's putting people in prison because of public opinion or subjective thoughts or how you feel about them. I'm believing not... that they are capable of truly abominable crimes because they're doing something else that you don't like, like being gay or, or like being black. You know, like that's yes. the thing. The problem with this sort of detectives, largely white detectives going with their gut level instincts is that they're going to have biases and prejudices. And I think what we're seeing, we saw this recently with the pandemic, is this human tendency to privilege our own intuitive reasoning above science and to dismiss science when it contradicts our gut. And I don't want a justice system run by people's guts. I want it run by evidence. But evidence collection and analysis is more expensive. It requires more funding. Where apparently we, our friend Jan Burke, who was on the Dinner Party show, uh, was a big activist in this area. And she would talk about how the government would always allot the funding for improvements in forensic sciences, but they would never actually release the money. So it would never get spent. Um, we have a strange patchwork of uh, state-level um, requirements around who could be a coroner, who can be a pathologist. There's no standardization about whether that's even going to be a doctor. In some in some jurisdictions, right. it's not a doctor. Right, it's so an elected official. We have, and I th- I see what the more we talk about stories like this, the more I see this desire, this misguided, childish desire to figure out these cases just using our brains. And it's not enough. It's just not enough. Well, and uh, the other side of it, and it's the thing that they this particular case pointed out, the lawyer, you know, mm-hmm. the two most powerful forces, the other side driving this process is the media's insatiable demand for why aren't you doing anything? The fact that you haven't solved this means you're not doing anything. Well, 
that isn't true at all. There's yeah. no, there is no causal link. But the fact that we haven't caught anybody doesn't mean we're not trying. You know what I mean? But they mm-hmm. want an immediate because this is a story, and I want this to be concluded, and I want an answer, and I want it to match up with something that makes a good story, and that I can report and have video for, and that will look good on the news and make me look good. And that is not necessarily how law enforcement works. Mm-hmm. It may be really boring and very pedantic and very sort of like the uh, I'll be gone in the dark mm-hmm. research that ultimately Michelle did and her compatriots did on that. While it turned out to be a great story in the long run, in the in the moment of it, it wasn't particularly exciting. It was mm-hmm. very sort of nuts and bolts. cumbersome. Yeah. Figuring out that thing about, well, what if we started using 23andMe as a way of sort of fine narrowing down mm-hmm. where this gene pool might be and where he might have come from or whatever the name of the. Yeah. Uh, the, the ancestry. The genetic, the ancestry thing, whatever, or whatever it was. It I don't was. know if it was ancestry, but right. I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Like that's not exciting. It isn't glamorous. It isn't. And so nobody was covering it. Like people don't cover crimes that aren't exciting or sexy or whatever. And, and I'm not even sure that they should be. It's, I, I'm not even in favor of having court, uh, uh, cameras in the courtroom mm-hmm. because I don't think it should ever be about that. This is not entertaining. Right. There is no necessity that it be entertaining, that it be facile or quick or flashy or look good on the evening news or your resume or anything else. It should be about justice and mm-hmm. not conviction. I think we're running into cases. There's a case going on in, golly, I think it's maybe Oklahoma. Mm. I'm not sure, so I don't want to smear Oklahoma, but there is a man who is in prison for a crime he did not commit. The witness against him says he didn't. The other participants in the crime says he didn't. The prosecutors say that he didn't. Everybody says, and the governor says, it's not a priority for him to pardon this guy. So he's actually still in prison, even though nobody thinks he should be there. Like, what is that about? What is that about? My God, that's it's, horrifying. It's a yeah. hideous. It's a hideous story, and it's the kind of thing that that happens when your priorities are the conviction and not the justice. Yeah, like I don't care if there's ever a conviction. Yeah, winner take all. That's, like it's the justice, mentality. because yeah. the victim's family is not going to be served by. You know, we barbecued somebody or we brought somebody in. If it's not the person, I mean. Their family member who was killed or injured or attacked or whatever is not going to be spared their fate Mm -hmm. as a result of somebody's in prison for it, even if they really did it. And if they didn't, would they really want to victimize somebody else's family Mm -hmm. in order that they could feel better about this bad thing having happened to them? It's just it's a really strange kink in where we are mm-hmm. with uh, with criminal justice in this country that I, I don't really understand the source of it other than it is about feeding this insatiable story mm-hmm. maw that the media has become. Mm-hmm. They want an answer and they want it on the news and they want it now and they want it frequently to match the narrative that they have already come up with Mm -hmm. in the case that we did last week once they had gone girl it was in the mouth of absolutely every Mm -hmm. famous newscaster in the country because wow that was sexy and wow that you know it's the gone girl case it's real life gone girl it's gone girl it's gone girl that's a movie and a novel Mm -hmm. that didn't really happen yeah and it's a brutal way to destroy somebody else's life because you want it to match up with a story that you want to tell. Exactly. I and, think that those two demons are really feeding each other. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, I, I listen to you say all this and I agree all with you. And then I feel like, what is my culpability in being a consumer of this entertainment? But the thing that I was thinking about what we do specifically is that we're usually talking about a 30,000-foot view of cases that have already unfolded, which is what most of these specials go in on, where we can hopefully look at how all of the pieces moved together or didn't move together. And there's some volume of information. We're not dealing in this instantaneous headline-chasing, what is trending, um, convict, rush to convict. The number, uh, what do they say? It's the, the, the accusations are on page one and the retraction is usually on page 30. Right. You know, it's just, I, I, I... 
I don't know how long, how many more times we're going to have to see it. I've always said, and I've been saying it now for so long, I've stopped believing that it was true. But this is what I used to say, and I remember saying this on the dinner party show when we used to stream live out of the studio. There's going to be a suicide caused by a false accusation on social media of, of, of a major, at a major level, a real accusation of murder or something like that. And someone is going to try to hold the social media platform liable for hosting whatever the accusation was. Um, it's not happened yet that I'm aware of. I think we may be close with the insurrection. <laughs> Nancy Grace has already done it. Nancy Grace has already done it, but Nancy Grace's career continued on after she had And made, continues to this day. And woman. I'm not saying that it shouldn't, but I think it should be an object lesson to all of us. But she is a, a perfect example of one of these individuals who claims that common sense should trump all. She is exactly the example of the person who gets out there and says, whatever your snap judgment is of somebody or a situation, you're right, and everyone else is just trying to distract you from what the truth is and what you know to be the truth in your heart. And I think nine times out of ten, she's full of shit. And I think that, you know, I would, I, I would say it's probably the other way around. Yeah. I would say it's probably one time in 10 she's full of shit. I don't think she's stupid. She's a former prosecutor. And I think, but it is, that's not the approach. Yeah. Like, yeah. what is your actual evidence? Your belief that somebody is guilty is not. And that's the problem. It's like, I have a belief that this person is guilty, so I'm going to now mix and match the evidence that fits, and I'm going to try to suppress the evidence that doesn't fit, when the fact is that the evidence should be the guy. And she drove that woman to kill herself yeah. over doing something to her child that she didn't do. It yeah. was later proved that she didn't do it. And I really, how she personally came back from that, I don't have any idea. I'm not sure I could survive that. Well, I got into I it. bullied somebody into killing themselves. I got it. I didn't get into it directly with Nancy Grace, but I did join a call, when I used to join call-outs on social media, which has been a long time, uh, Nancy Grace uh, did a, a, somebody smashed a pie in somebody's face at some person. She, she spoke out against how horrible that was. And do you want to know who she used an example of a victim of a public pie? Anita Bryant. Anita fucking Bryant. Boy, if anybody deserved oh, at least a cement pie. One of the most virulently anti-gay, uh, just passed laws to keep gays from being teachers. And Nancy Grace is going to trot her out as a do victim. You know, I do just you know lost what Anita my said after she got hit with the pie? What? She said, well, it was a fruit pie. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking bitch. Anyway, well, that went to in directions uh. I didn't expect it to go. So, okay, so this was, as Eric said, it's part of a crime pairing. Next week, we are doing the Clint Eastwood right. film. They, they did a movie treatment Richard of this Jewell. same story. So we're going to yeah. do a crime pairing and have a look at how they addressed the, the, the facts of this case and interpret them into... An even bigger story about this poor man. I will have a lot of supplementary information about the film as well that oh. I'm going to surprise Eric dun, dun, dun. Until then and forever after, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.